and welcome to the Auto Week Podcast, the place where you find all your racing, car news, car culture news, and hear about some interesting drives. Um, today, on today's episode, we are talking about uh, Kyle Larson later in the show, that whole debacle. Um, we're talking about maybe an Aston Martin DB11 at the end of the show. Touch on some news uh, outside of Kyle Larson. But before all that, we're at the top of the show talking about Auto Week Talks. Natalie, what are we talking about today? So yeah, today we are talking Talks, uh, our branded little section we call Auto Week Talks, which just as a teaser here for a moment, we are looking at rebranding for next week. So stay, stay tuned and see how we repackage our fun little weekly theme segment um, for next week. But this week, Auto Week Talks, Rust which seems like uh, as I look out the window here and it's still snowing in the Detroit area, an appropriate topic given the season. Um, But, you know, we tend to riff on these themes in a hundred different directions when given the theme of rust, you know, the, the subjects we all gravitate toward are basically what the heck to do with the rust on your own car. (laughs) And um, I can tell you that in our household, we, we don't do a lot of preventative work. We do a lot of avoidance work. So that generally means that our, uh, the, the one quote unquote classic car that we have in the garage is a 72 beetle. And it basically gets put away washed down and put away before the first salt comes out on the road. And then we don't take it out again until the last salt application in the spring. Um, But that's generally how we deal with it. Uh, I know Graham, though, explored a kind of different route for dealing with the potential of rust in our area. Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, the the reason that it's all about you know, our cars rusting all these topics in one way or another are because uh, Mark Vaughn on the West Coast doesn't even know what rust is. And right. us in the Midwest, we only, I mean, I think it's its kind of weird when you take a step back and think about how if we're in the, the salt belt or whatever, which weirdly overlays with the rust belt, um, you just take it as a, a given that cars are only going to last so long because they're going to rot out. Um, which is why people with special interest cars, collector cars, sports cars, whatever, do the do, do what you do with your Beetle, which is you basically lock it away for the winter. Mm-hmm. But and I do that with the Packards and obviously the motorcycle. Not not that that's a, a year round thing here anyway. But you know that's fun if and good if you can do that if you have the luxury of it. But when I was daily driving my Wagoneer which originally came from Montana and was a little bit weathered, but fundamentally, um, you know, rust free. I, I had to drive it. It was my daily driver for a couple of years. And that did a lot of damage because those things are prone to rust anyway. So not that I drive it in the winter, but I don't like the idea of having a Jeep you couldn't drive in the winter. So I am turning to the world of, somewhat effective, somewhat dubious rust um, preventative treatments. So that's that's what I kind of wrote about. I 
I used to have the thing. I used to take it to, to Windsor, Ontario every year. And uh, there's a company there. I don't know if they're still there called oil guard. And they basically hmm. spray what amounted to motor oil uh, on the bottom of the vehicle and in all the crevices and stuff. Uh, I have not been able to do that. Now you can't even cross the border. So I couldn't do it even if I wanted to. So I've been trying to figure out how to do that at home. And after going back and forth, um, I settled on this stuff called fluid film, which I think we might've mentioned when I, when we were talking about spring, you know, the spring talks a couple of weeks ago, but so basically I, I wrote a story about um, my battle against rust and why that led me to spray this very weird uh, sheep smelling stuff on the bottom of my Jeep with the Harbor Freight sprayer. So <laughs> it makes me feel better. I, I like to think it's helping in some way. But, I like uh, the, you know, you talk about getting the undercarriage sprayed with essentially motor oil. <laughs> um, but I liked the passage in your story where you talked about the effectiveness of that because the motor oil itself sort of binds <laughs> with the environmental detritus to form a kind of seal, like a whole, whole conglomeration of stuff. It's like a hard candy coating. Anybody who's done work on an old leaky, you know, fluid leaking vehicle right. has probably had that point where they, you know, pop some clod of greasy dirt off from some, you know, four decade old part of the suspension and go, wow, this looks brand new under here. <laughs> right. You know, so the theory, and again, all this stuff is kind of, uh, you know, there's a lot of homebrew attempts to, to replicate that. But the theory is if you can basically replicate that coating on all of your underbody and get that oil, you know, wax or oil into every crevice, then you're cutting the, the steel off from air and halting or preventing rust, ideally. I mean, there's right. a lot of there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, backyard science at play there. And one of the things that I almost did um, for a couple of years, I've been toying with the idea is you can make a concoction using paraffin and motor oil or bar oil, or some people use uh, used motor oil um, and you heat it up over a burner with white spirits, which, you know, mm -hmm. I was going to do, but it sounded like basically a way for me to end up with no eyebrows in a best case scenario. Uh, like heating up white spirits over an open flame. I don't know. So I, I ended up going with this wax oil stuff or uh, fluid film stuff. Yeah. So, so explain what this stuff is and, and what, specifically what fluid film is. So it's, they are not sponsoring the podcast yet. Although I'm sure after this, they will be throwing money at us. Um, <laughs> but it is this, you know, I don't know, three quarters of a century old company that makes basically, um, I think it was originally designed for like naval use, but it's, it's a, um, it's a, I don't know what, what you'd call it. It's a rust inhibitor, I guess, slash lubricant. Um, so it, the, the thing that makes it particularly odd is it's um, lanolin based. So mm -hmm. that's like a, a wax that comes from uh, the wool industry. It's like a, mm -hmm. it's a major component of wool which is why wool clothes are, you know, waterproof relatively um, 
So it's a it's a derivative of wool, and it smells like sheep, but it mm -hmm. looks like caramel topping. So there's kind of a weird mental thing when you pop open the can, uh, and it's it's what's called a thixotropic fluid, so it or substance. So it sets up to kind of a jelly, and in theory, if you stir it, uh, it it becomes more fluid to the point where you could spray mm -hmm. it. Um, it's still a little cold here. It wasn't, it wasn't snowing when I went out to experiment with this. So I had to cook up, uh, like a, a weird double boiler thing, um, in my driveway, which was very safe and legitimate. Um, but ultimately, which is getting close to your meth kitchen thing that you were, dealing yeah, but, <laughs> you know, at least it wasn't like I was dumping the most flammable substance in my garage into right. a pot and then heating that up, which the white spirits thing would have, would have done. So uh, I think the risk of everything going up in a giant fireball was a little less, but it was still pretty sketchy. Uh, but then once I got the stuff into this $25 Harbor Freight sprayer, which even came with its own little extension wand. Um, I mean, it was, it was super easy. It took maybe an hour to do all of it. Uh, and if I did, what did it again, you do to, prep the undercarriage though did you like power spray it did you No, it was pretty clean to start mm -hmm. uh there was some kind of undercoating applied at some point i don't know if it was a factory thing or if this is just you know the, the factory paint flaking off so i did power wash it i have a power washer um let it dry but you can apply this stuff damp um and yeah just cleaned it as well as i could got all the 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 dust or and grime out of the, you know, folds of metal behind the, the wheel arches, places that are really prone to, to rust. Um, again, I, it's not perfect, but thought is, you know, I probably went a little heavy with this coat. So hopefully if there's any existing dirt on the, uh, on the frame that I missed, this will just leach into it and form part of that protective coating. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. At least I'm telling myself that it's what it's going to do. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, the thing about these, and I think why a lot of people don't like this approach, you know, people would rather spray on a rubberized undercoating or, um, you know, paint it with uh, like an epoxy paint like POR15 or POR15. Uh, this does have to be reapplied. It's it's a never-ending process. And I think a lot of people right. would like to think of like a rust preventative thing as a one and done like i just put this stuff on and then as long as i run my car through the car wash every week in the winter it's done but i i mean especially with old cars where they didn't have really great um you know paint chemistry or galvanized metal dippings before they were put in the paint booth i i don't think you can ever have a one and done rust preventative thing i think there's like a routine you have to do if you want to hold mm -hmm. this stuff back so i don't have a problem spraying it twice a year especially if it only takes an hour it's about 40 bucks a gallon again i probably went heavy with this coat so i think i could do it with less than a gallon next time especially if the stuff actually builds up so i don't know we'll see it it, it makes me feel like i'm doing something which is not <laughs> you know not completely worthless and also i know i'm gonna have to get the thing painted i don't know if i want to go with a body off you know restoration on the thing but this mm -hmm. is just to buy me a couple years until i can afford to get the body fixed up and painted um right and it's not seeing daily winter driving use so um i don't know i mean i i think 
it's partly wishful thinking that this will make a huge difference, but if it if it helps a little, if it fixes, it won't take much to prevent forty dollars worth of rust damage. <laughs> yeah, <down>. yeah. <laughs> like, which again, Ren, I know you know you can speak to this about buying old cars, uh, rust probably being the one thing you want to avoid because it ends up being a lot more expensive than any mechanical problems. So, oh, yeah. And for most of us, it's harder to fix at home. And it's it's harder to fix anywhere, just a bunch of time, and it's a huge pain in the butt. But before we move on to that, going back to your statement about like undercoating and stuff, rubberized undercoatings generally do more damage than good, especially on modern vehicles, right? Because the rubberized undercoating coats all the... <laughs> fluid lines, the so your brake lines, your, your fuel lines, etc., uh, your electrical connections. It makes a huge mess of the car oh, yeah. if when you need to service it, which is why I would always recommend something like this, like a fluid film or a crown is another brand of it, that sure, you might need to reapply it, but you're not causing any significant lasting damage or headaches down the road. And if I, if I end up at a point where I do pull the body off the frame and I want to put on uh, like an epoxy paint undercoating. Yeah. Uh, obviously, that'll be a lot easier to do when I don't have to dab paint on around brake lines and you know fuel lines yeah. and wires. But also, removing this stuff is pretty trivial compared to trying to get a bunch of rubber, uh, you know, spray yeah. off from everything. So it's 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 reversible. I, I like modifications and stuff that are reversible. Um, and I, I see this as an extension of that. You know, it's it's more of a pain. It's continuous, basically. But like you said, it doesn't cover up any essential components permanently. And it's it's pretty easy to, to take off there if I do decide to do something uh, more permanent, which then there's no reason I can't put this on over that whatever paint I eventually put on. Mm -hmm. So, But uh, real fast, let's talk about ways to not buy a rusty piece of junk because... Uh, <laughs> I've done that, and let me tell you, it it does suck. Um, so my first car, going back a ways, uh, I'm what, 21 now? So going back a mere two years, I'm kidding. Uh, about 13 years ago, I bought my 54 Ford, uh, and I didn't do any due diligence because the person that sold me the car was a friend of a friend and said it was like a nice, solid car. Uh, I took it home. I put it on a lift. Uh, and found out that what was there was solid, I guess. You, you, can, you can look at it that way. Like, yes, there was steel on the car, just not a lot of it, um, which leads me to a little tip. Uh, when you're buying a car, look at it. Do your due diligence. Look underneath it. Uh, bring a magnet to start throwing on body panels, like a junk refrigerator magnet even, because... At least in the Midwest, uh, there's a bad habit of, and in uh, Pennsylvania and, and states that require inspections, a bad habit of uh, bondo covering chicken wire to fill holes and newspaper and stuff. Any uh, any possible non-real rust repair way of filling holes to pass state inspections. Uh, it's probably used on a junk old car, which is now a collector's item that you're trying to buy. Uh, look underneath the car. Check out all the suspension mounting points, uh, such as my car, the front cross member, which was exceptionally solid for how rusty the piece of junk was. Uh, so yeah, just make sure to <laughs> spend 30 minutes looking at a car before you spend thousands and thousands of dollars chasing down vintage, new old stock, sheet metal, and begging friends with TIG welders to do some panel replacement with you. 
I mean, there there is a difference between I would say a Midwest solid old car and a uh, West Coast solid car. You oh, know, totally. I, you know, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, Jay Ramey's piece on cars of the Pacific Northwest uh, and why that's kind of an unexpected uh, haven for relatively solid cars is a good example of, you know, I, when when a, a listing for a car in Michigan says, you know, barely any rust. Rust free. Yeah. yeah. Rust free or, my, you know, sometimes you do find a rust free car. If it, if it was a, a grandpa car that sat in a garage, you know, six months out of the year from new. Yeah. You might, you might get lucky and find something that is untouched, but yeah. Uh, Michigan rust free and Arizona rust free are two completely different things. Uh, yeah. Like a, a Michigan solid car only means it needs a uh, fender bottoms rockers and maybe uh, quarter bottoms, depending on uh, how bad <laughs> bad is. That just means you don't need to do any structural work to make the car sound again. Right. But uh, I no, know, it's I definitely know, we're definitely dealing with relative terms here. Yeah, I know a lot of people on the West Coast that uh, have had their hearts broken when they came to the Midwest to buy a car to find out that to them it's a pile of junk, and to a Midwesterner it's like, no, oh, it's a nice, nice starting point. Which is why I had to, you know, I'm surprised I haven't gotten any flack from Mark on this, but I had to, I had to rip on the California patina thing a little bit because it's uh you know, they kind of make patina into this like fetishized, like, Oh, the car is so authentic. We've clear coated over the rusty hood. This is like a real, like rugged car. It's like, man, <laughs> if you had to battle rust, like, like you, like we do, uh, this would not be a, a fun, cool thing. This would be like, uh, I don't know. It's a cool look, but, but there's a reason that that's like a, a fun thing out there. Like, aha, there's some visible rust on our, on our, uh, you know, two hundred and fifty thousand dollar resto mod. Like, I don't know. Whatever. Or we 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 printed a vinyl wrap to give yes, to give our Porsche yes. a, a, well, a resto logical end point of the whole thing. But yeah, I mean, that's probably just me being bitter about having to spray sheep goo on my Jeep to keep it from turning <laughs> into a pile of dust. But uh, anyway. uh, Graham, I I think he might have triggered like an emotional breakthrough for me because I think that might be why I have such a like a strong pushback against the whole like rat rod movement. Or whatever, because I spend so much time and effort trying to prevent and replace rust that it's like, why embracing it just doesn't make sense to me at all. It's like that's rust is the enemy, right? So but if I, you if you live in a place with you know a half inch of rain a year and zero percent humidity, then you can basically encase that look in amber because it's you know it's not going to get any worse. So it's I a, mean, whatever. It's a- it's a privileged, it's a privileged yes. perspective, you know, I mean. Anyway, as long as you've got a rusty car you're trying to save, you will never run out of things to, to do. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think now is that's a, that's a pretty good summation of rust. Uh, rust is bad. Okay. Uh, I think now it's a good time to hit the, hit the old racing news. And it's finally time for the one thing that, uh, We've all been waiting for racing news. Uh, you're here. We're still here with me, Wesley, uh, Mike Pryson, and Matt Weaver are right here too. We're not right there. We're remote today. Well, my computer's right here, and you're coming out of my computer, so I can feel yeah. how I want to feel. Um, not a lot of racing news this week, right, guys? 
Well, there's a lot of news. Matt, take it away, man. Uh, your buddy uh, Kyle Larson uh, looking for work. So yeah, Kyle, Kyle Larson is is unemployed. He's looking for work. Uh, he was released by racing, suspended by NASCAR, lost all of his sponsors, which you know up to it. Um, he dropped the hard R, and you just don't say that. And Kyle Larson said that in his apology video, but. Um, it came too late, honestly, and um, you, you can't drop the hard R, uh, especially if you're not black. That's just how this works. Well, let, let's did. be very clear, Matt. I don't think Kyle can use any variant of that uh, that word. I I am inclined to agree with you. Um, the only thing I would I would say back to be just very careful. Um, I I I am not an arbiter of that word. Um, there are people who are way more qualified to talk about which version is and isn't and can or can't be or could even be considered. And I just want to be very respectful to to anyone who is an arbiter of that word because I am not. And it, to me, it just it doesn't matter. And if you're Kyle Larson with thirty million dollar sponsorship packages and McDonald's and Capital One, uh, First Data, all all supporting your racing efforts you're you're in a free agency year you've got rick hendrick and gene haas and jip chip canassi everyone just fawning over you you've got to have more more situational awareness than that and the 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 main thing here is is that this indicates a larger trend it's it's not just about him using the word and how often he uses that word but listen i'll tell you right now point blank kyle larson's a good dude i'm not going here and and pile on beat the dead horse and you know turn this to a a debate about his character like i wrote in my column on on the website this wasn't malice it was ignorance and there's never a time but this is really not the time for ignorance the entire world at your beck and call waiting to pay you a ton of money to be a race car driver. And he made the worst possible mistake at the worst possible time. And uh, I don't know immediately where he goes from here. Yeah. I don't, I have a, I'm struggling with this being a mistake, right? I mean, a mistake is like, Oh, you accidentally drop like your dinner. Uh, You might accidentally, you know, hit someone like hit another car with your car you can actively avoid being a racist or using racial slurs i i I can't argue with you like again i um i said this in my column to me like it's a mistake in the sense that everyone has different backgrounds and upbringing like i said earlier i don't believe that this was this was malice i just believe it was ignorance and i think part of the the process that larson is about to go through with the sense of sensitivity training and the empathy training is that he's going to be made aware of why this is so hurtful, so damaging um, all the implications and and, and damage that that word has historically and continues to do. And that's the part that I think that we can all probably learn from, because even if you are aware and even if you have an understanding you can always be more empathetic you can always be more aware of of other people's situations and backgrounds and that's what i hope cal larson takes away from that um about how damaging it is 
And I hope that he is very transparent and open about what he learns. And I hope that we're kind of allowed and willing to go through that journey with him. That's a good point, Matt. Um, Is there a path for Kyle to get back in a car and maybe in the good graces of NASCAR and the the greater community? I, I... I, I think there is, but there's a process. Um, we, we saw with Jeremy Clement, um, the last driver who, who dropped the hard off, happened in 2013. And we need to talk about that, too, about why, you know, why this is so bad for NASCAR. I, I want to get into that. But for sure. With Jeremy, with, with Jeremy Clements in 2013, um, he was indefinitely suspended by the same body um during the middle of the season he missed two weeks and he had the same sort of all he had to take and he was back in a car the difference is is jeremy clements drives for himself it's a family-owned team and um he was able to just get back in his his status quo uh with with kyle larson it's different obviously because he is in a championship winning car uh, top tier team and there, there, there's a lot of different paths here he's a free agent now obviously he would have been a free agent at the end of the year so run the world of outlaws you know full time this year he hasn't missed a race yet and run dirt um, he or underfunded teams kind of like what Kurt did. and I think the Kurt Bush analogy has a lot of weight here because Bush had um, domestic Violence allegations, and that was taken to court, and that went through the process. And Bush drove for a couple of underfund, underfunded teams, uh, James Finnerturo, and eventually he was picked up by Stuart Haas Racing, and Kurt was able to revive his career. I think it would be a, a path. Uh, Tony Stewart was coveting Kyle Larson anyway, but I it doesn't matter whether it's through the world of outlaws, whether it's through underfunded teams. Path forward is going to have to include messaging of of what was learned, why it wasn't okay, and 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 very sincere apology that goes beyond the video. And I thought the video hit all the right notes. Again, it was just it was too late. Yeah. Um... How do you think this affects NASCAR? People perceive it as being not quite as progressive as other motorsport. Uh, do you think this hurts NASCAR's image or adds, adds to that? It already has. So I, I mentioned that ESPN, CNN picked it up on Sunday night. See, no other universe outside of the coronavirus shutdown is picking up I think the last time CNN picked up NASCAR was when uh, Earnhardt passed away. Actually, I'll, I'll tell you the last time CNN picked it up because it was there when their reporters were there, Ooh. and they played the they they played the footage um, over the past couple of days. It was during um, the 2016 season when some of the the NASCAR then ISC owned tracks were doing the program to where fans could trade in the Confederate flag for uh, a brand new old glory. And some of the, the, the regional and national media outlets were doing interviews with fans 
their their strongest man on the street style interviews refusing to exchange the flag that in their words that flag was part of national culture and heritage and they don't speak for everyone but they speak for a lot of people and this incident added so much fuel to the fire and it gave the detractors and the critics more ammo. Um, Stephen A. Smith, when, when he had his his segment, he said, of course it was a NASCAR driver. Now, those of us who were there are like, no, 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 of, not, not of course it's a NASCAR. Kind of like not all men, not all NASCAR men, but that's the perception. And it's, and it's a perception that is earned by NASCAR. It is a, it is a reality that NASCAR also has to own and they've been working on it very diligently. And the worst part of this is that Kyle Larson is a graduate of the NASCAR drive for diversity program designed to give anyone from any background who strives towards a career in the sport the opportunity to ply their craft. And the fact that it came from Larson and the fact that now everyone gets to play those videos of fans flying those flags and it brings that back to the front and center. And when people say this set the sport back a decade, that's what I mean. And that's not an overreaction. That was the damage done. And that's why NASCAR suspended him. That's why Chip Ganassi suspended him. And that's why the sponsor left. And that's why he's unemployed. Hey, Wesley, can I yes, ch- can I chime in? Hey, yeah. uh, one thing, a couple things about Kyle Larson, which we're kind of missing here. One, this isn't a kid who just has been on the series for a year. I mean, he's been he's been through so much media training. He saw he he saw the the Jeremy Clements era of 2013. You know, he he has seen all this stuff. And also, Kyle Larson is probably the poster child for NASCAR's drive for diversity. I mean, if he hasn't gotten this drilled into him, that a lot of eyes are going to be on him. You know, a lot of eyes are on a lot of these young kids coming up through the ranks. I mean, this is it's almost like he's just oblivious to this. And the fact that he let it slip out in, a, in an eye race, whatever. I mean, that to me, it still seems like, wow, it's the guy who's speeding down the highway. He finally got caught and said, I've never done this before. I mean, that's just crazy for me. I, I have no sympathy for this kid. I, I Did he come back? I don't know who's going to sponsor him. I mean, if, if McDonald's dumps you, who is going to step in and say, hey, we'll take you? I just think that that would be an incredible hit for that company. Uh, what, what company, Matt, do you think is going to sponsor Kyle Larson right now? Well, it's not going to happen right now. I mean, there's been a handful of sponsors that actually have said they're going to stick by them. Plan B sales being one of them. Um, the sponsor of a sprint car program, um, I forget the name of it, it's a California farm. They're going to stick by them. So, look, there, there are sponsors not enough to get him the millions of dollars. Not not the big money sponsors that are going to get him back to the Cup Series. Right. He, he's he's not going to be in a championship winning Cup program in 2020. Assuming it is a 2020, and we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. Um, but I do think, like I said earlier, you know, once he goes through through the process, you know, there there's a path forward. Listen, the the world we live in, especially in media. We, we, we as media punditry, we as a society, we, we do like to, just to be totally frank, we, we like to pile on as a society. That's just the reality. But if there's something more that America likes than piling on, they like second chances. But they have to be earned. 
second chances. And I, I think back to, I think back to, um, to Kurt Busch. And again, Kurt Busch didn't drop the hard R, but there were serious domestic violence allegations. That wasn't a walk in the park to get back either. He found a sponsor in, in Monster Energy that of his hard edges and liked his personality. And if, if Kyle Larson does his due diligence and he goes through the, the right processes and, and takes away the right values out of this process, there, there, there are multiple ways back. I mean, uh, Chip Ganassi told the Associated Press that there's a path back with his team. Um, you know, totally frank here, his price tag just went down tremendously. And that was part of the challenge in, in signing Larson is he was using Ganassi, Stuart Haas, and Hendrick against each other in a bidding war. That doesn't exist now. Um, so it's going to you're, you're going to basically shave off six to seven million dollars in an in initial salary once you have that conversation for 2021, 2022. And if he says and does the right things, People love being a part of the second chance. Um, Stuart Haas, if he decides to, to go there, they've always had one car that is unsponsored. That's actually how Kurt Busch ended back into um, the top tier of the Cup Series after his, his season with Rowe and, and James Finch. That car that, that Gene Haas um, has sponsored by Haas CNC. And Mike, you and I talked about it on the phone yesterday that you know, there's a chance that, that Gene Haas is not in Formula One next year, and maybe he has some extra money. Um, well, there's a, my, uh, Matt, there's a pretty good chance he's not in Formula One this year either. Yeah, absolutely. But I do think that, listen, he is toxic. I'm talking about uh, Kyle Larson. He's radioactive right now, and there's no scenario that he chases a championship or wins a Cup Series race for the 2020 season as we know it. But just like a lot of things can change with this plague, Kyle Larson has an opportunity to do the right things. And people love second chance stories in America, but Kyle is going to have to do the legwork. Hey, Matt, is Kyle Larson good enough? Has his results been good enough that I mean, he's not Kyle? I mean, Kurt Busch had, was a champion. Uh, Kyle Larson has won six races in his career. Um, never finished, you know, inside. Like it looks like here, it looks like top six one time in the in the uh, final chase or whatever the countdown. Um, what uh, is he good enough that people are going to root for him to get that second chance, or are those young kids in the next wave just going to push him aside? Kyle Larson is was the highest sought after free agent for a reason. I mean, the the challenge there is more so Chip's cars. Chip's cars have a high ceiling, but they have a low floor too. Um, like I don't think he wins a championship as car with, with Ganassi racing, unless it's a very unique set of circumstances. Um, challenge there is not Kyle Larson, the driver, um, Kyle Larson, the driver has won in mass everywhere he's been, everything he's gotten into and all the underlying metrics. You're a baseball guy. So I, I would actually encourage you there, there are baseball style saber metrics very interesting world to delve into but Kyle Larson ranks very highly in what's called peer production average which is basically if you strip away the cars and all cars are equal 
Kyle Larson is top five in what he gets out of his own personal car. His restart, uh, restarts are the most important thing in NASCAR. His restart data, top five driver. So, yeah, I mean, just purely on the underlying metrics, Kyle Larson provides driver value to an organization. Just the challenge now, like we keep talking about, is is he going to be able to provide sponsorship value? Is he going to be able to provide ethical value right. to a team and that's going to be the conversation but it will never be about his talent and can he win races and championships he just has to have the car and he hasn't all right let's move on a little bit to those races and championships uh what's going on with nascar this year not much right man <laughs> so yeah we talked about this a little bit last time but um there is a a contingency plan every possible scenario they've taken a different approach from say indycar where every time that indycar has had to to redo the schedule they make it public uh they moved it from the indy 500 to to belle isle uh to to now texas but you know eddie's not going to run texas without fans so texas is not going to be the season opener by most accounts nascar has taken the complete opposite approach they too have multiple contingency plans they still have not formally canceled uh the martinsville weekend on on may 7 to 9 which is tentatively their their first race back but virginia is under a stay-at-home order until june 10th so let's be frank that's not the day either but you know both roger pinsky and the france family are part of President Trump's counsel to to reopen America, which if you've watched the news, this is part of the strategy for the economy to to reopen in kind of a, a trickle-down format. Um, purely from a NASCAR standpoint, there is pretty strong conviction from, from NASCAR that they believe they can run races without fans in attendance as early as the Coca-Cola 600 late in May. Uh, PGA, golf, which is different because you don't need fans for 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 golf. In fact, it's almost preferable because you don't have to silence people. <laughs> but but motorsports can, can follow that kind of similar lead. Now, we're still talking about, if you're running the Cup Series, maybe a support series, 500, 600 people in a, depending on the track, um, 1.5 to 2.5 mile radius, and there's going to be some challenges there. Who's essential? Uh, do you do you have to have live pit stops? Can you try to do the 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 no live pit stop experiment that the Truck Series and Xfinity right. Series was going to try this year? Maybe all those things are on on the table, but they do feel pretty confident that they can be the first sport to to kind of do that because. They don't need fans in attendance, and they've got that contingency plan. And NASCAR people are saying they feel pretty strongly that late May is plausible. But like we keep urging, there's so much we don't know. We still don't even know what we don't know about this virus, and it's going to continue to be a a fluid situation. Well, North Carolina governor, I mean, they've still got to stay at home in, in North Carolina. Right now till April 29th, I checked on that. And to run the Coke, uh, you know, 600 four weeks later, you know, three weeks later, you're bringing in the teams and the stuff. I just don't see this happening, Matt. I just, even if they keep the fans away, they're not going to just open up the garage to these, all these uh, crews and teams. It's not just, you know, 
they got to be concerned about those guys too. And, and, you know, we saw what happened at Formula One in Australia. I mean, th- they had uh, crew members, you know, were coming down with this thing. And they're not out there ha- hobnobbing with the fans. It was just a, a crew member came down and they shut this thing down immediately. I just think, you know, three weeks after a stay-at-home order might get lifted, it just it just seems weight. This doesn't seem realistic to me. Um, you know, we, we'll talk about Formula One in a minute. But one of the things about Formula One is if you look at Formula One's website, they've taken – the schedule off of their website. They don't even have a tentative schedule up there because they realize it's just it's just frivolous. It's, it's a waste of everybody's time to sit here and make these contingency plans when we have no long we have no idea how long these governors are going to have the stay at home orders. And we talked about the the president's council and how there's NASCAR represented on there. That's awesome, but ultimately there's going to be a fight between that council and state governors and state government as to who's even going to call the shot on this thing. Um, that that council can say, hey, we want to run races in NASCAR and get America working. But if the governor of North Carolina says, ah, no, you're not, that's the end of the line right there. So I think we've got way too many hurdles. We're only, you know, five, six weeks away from teams starting to show up in North Carolina. Good luck. I, I, I wouldn't be booking a room right now. Oh, my, my short answer is yes. You're absolutely right. No, no, no debating the, the logic and, and the merits of that argument. We also live in a very strange world where, where Florida has deemed, you know, WWE as essential business. And I want to go into the reason why they were, we, we were joking about this off air, but there's actually a very um, hardline business reason for why they were allowed. Um, the way that specifically the state of Florida deems essential business. If you have a week, a weekly or daily nationally broadcast television program in Florida, you're deemed essential. That was the the asterisk that the WWE found. Um, Florida's governor, uh, Ron DeSantis, actually included NASCAR specifically in his speech last night. He says that we want to open the state as soon as it's safe to do so. And even if it's a limited opening, we want to have a golf tournament and we want to have a NASCAR race. So I think that, yes, absolutely. You, if, if we talk to you guys there in, uh, in Michigan, I don't think that the governor there is going to open up that state until it's completely safe to where maybe. You got open, gov- hey, she won't open up Home Depot. Come on. Sure. So the, the governor. So the governors of Florida, Alabama, South Carolina, let's just be totally frank here, they tend to be more conservative states. They're probably going to be a little more aggressive to get the economy rolling. And I think those states with those tracks could be more viable options. But to your point, Mike, the biggest challenge is it's one of those states that open until it's absolutely Carolina, and I have a hard time seeing how all these race teams are going to be able to prepare race cars and and do all the things you need to do to be race ready when they're in a state, North Carolina, that is under stay-at-home orders and has a governor that is not flexible at all. And you can talk about running races in Florida, Alabama, South Carolina, but if where 95% of your teams are will not allow employees to go to race shops i don't see where that go anywhere 
Nope, I hear you. I'm hoping for the best, but I, I'm 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 fearing we're we're still we're not even we're anywhere near going back to the racetracks yet. Uh, it's one thing for a governor to say, hey, uh, maybe it's essential. Maybe we need to get a race at North Carolina or whatever. I, at the end of the day, you've got people in hospitals, you've got people dying. It's just not going to be even a popular move, I don't think, by a governor right now to open up certain things, and one of them being a racetrack for for racing uh, when there's other things that aren't opened up that are a lot more important to people right now. Speaking um, of ra- speaking of racetracks for racing, uh, Formula One. Uh, there's a it's still a sport. Um, no, Formula One's in a, in a in a harder, a worse shape than uh, NASCAR or IndyCar, any of the U.S. series is for no other reason, uh, Wesley. That they're dealing with countries here and borders yeah. and and international travel and and right now you can't get to half of these places uh, with all the travel restrictions. Uh, we've had both Bernie Ecclestone, you know, the former uh, chief executive officer of the series, and Max Mosley, uh, just like yesterday, the president, former president of the FIA, have both called for ending the season right now in Formula One just because there's just no viable uh, path to having a legitimate season right now. Sure, they might be able to find a spot here or there where they can maybe get a race in or, or maybe sneak in a double header, but there's just no path to get a, a consistent season where we can actually – you know, have a championship. Uh, Formula One rules state uh, uh, we got to have eight races to even have a champion, and we've already canceled or postponed nine of 22 uh, races. So we're already getting down to it right now, and uh, I, I think Formula One is in, in jeopardy of uh, shutting down. We've got a lot of teams that have already furloughed all their employees, um, and in, in some of those countries it's not going to be easy to call them back if we decide, hey, we're going to run in a month uh, because some of those uh, countries aren't going to let those guys gather back in their in their shops. So uh, yeah. I think F one is in for F one might be in for a uh, long cold uh, summer, and uh, the 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 crazy thing is when you to- when we talked about this a month ago when Australia was you know about to happen and then didn't there's there was no concept of this the whole season being shut down in my mind I thought that'd be a, an impossible, and you said it's probably going to get shut down and I didn't believe you and here we are about a month later and. I think I'm on uh, on on your side of things. I think I don't think we're going to see any F1 this year. I just don't know what point you would push the button to even go back. Uh, you know, we're already canceled all the way up through July right now. Um, I mean, do you even consider starting a series in in August or September? I mean, would anybody take that seriously? Um, I, or you know, I just don't know. I just don't know, guys. I, I just I fear for Formula One. Um, I hope that's not going to be the answer here in the states, but. Uh, this thing's bad. I mean, this thing is, you know, they talk about the peaks and all that. Well, look how long it took us to get to some of these peaks. We haven't even gone back on the other side of the hill yet, and we don't know what's going to happen as things reopen and, and introducing these crowds. And it's one thing to say, sure, NASCAR or some of these series are willing to run uh, with an empty stadium or no, no stands, no grandstands. You know, I don't think all the promoters are on board with that. We've talked to uh, Eddie Gossage down in Texas. He wants no part of an empty arena for his events. Uh, you know, TV money be damned. He wants people in the stands. That that's a lot of money that they're that they're letting go. So we'll see how that all shakes out. But uh, um, I'm not buying my tickets for for North Carolina in, at the end of May quite yet. Um, maybe we'll get a break here in the next two weeks, and something will happen that that'll be turn positive. Maybe that presidential commit commission will be very proactive and just say, you know, damn it, we're going to go forward and and you know, frankly, see what happens. Which I just don't see how anybody says that in this climate, but maybe they do. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see at the end of the day. I don't know, Matt, if you feel comfortable going to a race right now or when you would, but that'd be kind of an interesting 
uh, you know, talk about the, some fans and some media. I mean, I'm not interested in going to a race right now um, and, you know, being amongst the, the crowds and the, and the stands, even in the media center. I just don't uh, feel comfortable. Matt, how about you? I, I guess that we would have to just play that by ear and just see what the, the landscape is. Certainly not now. And on the Formula One front, too, I also think, just because we haven't mentioned it yet, Ross Braun, the director of motorsports for Formula One, did say their their drop-dead date to start the season was August. And it's yeah. April now, so there's a lot of runway. Uh, I, know, I know the teams are, are furloughing, but they also have a built-in summer break, too, to where they shut down all the team shops for three weeks to a month. So you have that built in as well. They could start a season in August and, and run full season. They could even run into early 2021. But yes, you're absolutely right. Right now, the landscape doesn't look good, um, but it, it is vital. And we talked about this last time vital for each of these series who have television contracts to eventually run it in some way or form um, because that team, how you offset having to furlough people, having to let go of people temporarily. It's how you do bring them back is with television money. So they're going to try their their darndest to get in you know, 20-plus races this year for F1, for IndyCar to get 18 races, for IndyCar to get 36. I, Matt, I, before we break, uh, I do I did listen to the way you talked about the F1 can, you know, has even on the table considered a, a season that goes into 2021, kind of a uh, you know, 2021 season, kind of like we see in, in basketball or hockey or some of the other sports here, which is perfectly fine. But I think it's one thing to talk that way. But at the end of the day, do we think teams are really going to want to shorten their off season to the point where it's just a, just a couple of weeks before, you know, they're getting ready to go back to Australia in March, you know? It's, if it um, means getting paid, yes, 100% <laughs> of the time. Absolutely. Money, money will talk in this thing, no question about it. Well, I have to interject really fast. Uh, if you want to watch some medium racing, uh, every Friday on Twitch, uh, the uh, Hearst Autos Auto Week versus Road and Track versus Car and Driver Work From Home Cup. Uh, you can see me uh, fighting for the mid-pack every, every week. How, how's that view in the mid-pack? Is it pretty good? Oh, it's nice. Yeah, the car, the, all the liveries look good and uh, the racing is, well, you know, it's dicey in the mid-pack, kind of like Formula One. Just watch your language out there, Wesley. Watch your language. Oh, I don't have a my controller's broken, so I don't even have a microphone. So it, it works out great for me. Nice. Um, but with that, I think now is a good time to move on to the news. And we are back. It's time for the news, and that means one thing and one thing only. Mr. Reynolds here. How's it going? And the great Mark Vaughn is here for a sad, sad thing, which we'll talk about, I guess, right now. It's as good a time as any. Uh, Sterling Moss, the legend, uh, one of the most important drivers in history, he died. Mark, tell us about it. Moss uh, passed away at age 90 after a life well lived. Uh, what a guy. Uh, you look back on the great pantheon of great drivers and you've got a, a very, very small number who could sort of live in his orbit. You, you know, Juan Manuel Fangio, his teammate at Mercedes, certainly is one of them. You know, later Mario Andretti. But Sterling Moss, greatest driver never to have won a championship. He was uh, known as the uncrowned king of uh, Grand Prix racing. 
he was late 50s, uh, very early 60s, uh, active in, in that and in sports cars, uh, an all-around great guy. Uh, some some uh, listed 212 wins out of a total 529 races. Uh, one other source, the uh, one of the Motorsports Halls of Fame had uh, slightly lower numbers than that, but it that's just quibbling because he is he was a truly fantastic and amazing guy. And how do you sum him all up in uh, in one one brief story? You really can't. In fact, AutoWeek at AutoWeek.com, we had I don't know how many stories. I lost track. Everybody was writing some angle on Sterling Moss, uh, great champion, and an even better sort of elder statesman of motorsports. Uh, he retired, essentially retired in uh, 62 after a terrible crash at Goodwood, driving in the Glover Cup, which was not a points race in uh, Formula One and Grand Prix racing. Uh, was in a coma for a month, a little over a month, uh, recovered from that, and he actually got back in a car and tried racing after that. And, decided, no, nah, I, I just, I don't have the same edge. And he, he pretty much retired after that. But he segued into this life of the elder statesman of motorsport and the honor and the gentlemanly demeanor and the sportsmanship that he displayed on the track was manifest in his, uh, his public life after that. Just a great guy. I think anybody, it, almost everybody in our field has, has several uh, Sterling Moss stories, you know, meeting him and his lovely wife, Lady Susie, uh, and he he carried himself so well and was so accessible and just a joy to, to be with. He was one of those guys. He wasn't just a great driver. He was a, a great man. Um, Mark, I have to ask, did you get the chance to, uh, to meet him? Yeah, several times. If you're in this business, uh, he came out. Uh, he was very good at marketing himself, uh, a little bit like, uh, like Jackie Stewart. A lot of these guys became... Uh, were good businessmen in addition to being uh, good drivers, and uh, so he would uh, show up at a lot of things. Pebble Beach, he was he was there every year. He was a longtime honorary judge at Pebble Beach. You'd see him sitting next to Denise McCluggage, his dear friend and uh, our Auto Week alumni. Uh, so he he was at a lot of these things, always accessible. You know, you could go up and just chat away with him or or with his wife uh, Susie. He was, they were both just, uh, just delightful, delightful people. And, um, I, I want to, uh, just a, one story that really stuck with me that kind of told the whole, gave a great example of what kind of man he was, what kind of a racer he was, uh, in, uh, in writing, uh, the obituary and then a follow-up story, uh, there was an incident that was sort of representative of who Sterling Moss was and why he is so revered. And I, I dug around and in the 1958 Portuguese Grand Prix, there was uh, an incident there. Moss was driving a Van Wall. And at the time, the, that, that would be uh, like four straight wins for the Van Walls. They were, they were you know, the top runnings, uh, running. They were the sort of the Mercedes of their, of their era or that year anyway. They were doing very well. And uh, Moss <coughs> was uh, driving the Van Wall, got on the pole, won the race easily. And uh, like, I think it was either the last lap or while he was on his victory lap and um, Mike Hawthorne was still struggling to finish in the Ferrari in the 246, uh, Hawthorne uh, spun, went up an exit road and uh, was able to uh, restart the car and finish the race. But <clears throat> some of the witnesses to that incident claimed that uh, Hawthorne backed up on the racetrack 
And that would have been a violation of, of rules. And Hawthorne would have lost the six points he would have gotten for finishing uh, second in the race. And he would have lost the one point he would have gotten for fastest lap. So um, he, he, yeah, uh, Sterling Moss witnessed this whole thing. And when Sterling Moss, after the race, found out that there was a challenge to it, Moss immediately went to the stewards and said, no, no, he didn't back up on the track. He backed up on the runoff road. And, and they said, oh, well, OK. And so essentially handing Moss not only those seven points in that year's title chase, but handing him the championship. Because at the end of the year, uh, it was one point. Uh, that separated uh, Moss and Hawthorne from the championship. Hawthorne was the, was uh, won the championship that year, and Moss, uh, you know, was second. One of his four second-place finishes in the Grand Prix championship and followed by three third-place finishes. So he never won, despite being sort of more or less acknowledged as the greatest driver of his era, certainly by our own uh, beloved Denise McCluggage, who uh, wrote as much in her columns. But, uh, you know, that's the kind of guy he was. He he did what was right and what was fair. And that was that cost him. Nowadays, you see uh, some drivers who, who win championships by literally almost trying to kill their their uh, teammates, you know, or their competitors by taking them out. The last race, uh, we all saw the uh, Senna Prost crash or uh, Pro, uh, Prost was like driven off the track by uh, Senna and then Senna won the championship. And uh, there was even an incident with uh, Michael Schumacher uh, in the Benetton when uh, he, he did sort of the same thing. So it's, it's an era that Moss lived in an era that was completely different from these uh, tactics used by his successors. And I don't think we're ever going to go back th to that we're never going to see that kind of a driver again. Uh, you just can't because with, you know, millions and millions of dollars invested in this stuff, you've got so much riding on it. You can't allow, you know, sportsmanship and honor and patriotic duty to British race car manufacturers or all the other things that Moss held so dear. You can't allow that nowadays to enter into your driving tactics. Uh, so he's, uh, he's he passed away at the age of 90 after long illness. Uh, I read somewhere that they made clear it was not the current COVID-19 that's going around. He contracted an illness in Singapore in 2016. I uh, retired from public life after that and uh, passed away. I guess it was Easter Sunday, the morning of Easter Sunday, uh, at his home in London in Mayfair, the really nice part of London. So he was living well all the way up to the very end. I'm sure you guys probably met him at one time or another over the years. Yeah. I did. I met him a few times. My wife Maria and I uh, met him a few times. Uh, usually at Amelia Island, actually, is where I'm most familiar with him. Uh, and the thing, like Vaughn said, the universal truth about Moss is that he was just a good guy, you know. And you can f throw all the records and all the wins and all the whatever out out the window because I think people will remember him in twenty, thirty, forty years. Not because of the number of Formula One championships he didn't win, but because he 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 was a good guy. Susie, his wife, was delightful. Uh, two of the great storytellers at, at dinners and lunches and such. It was always always fun to just sit and listen to him and 
Boy, when he and McCluggage got together, I remember one time in, in Monterey, I had lunch with he and McCluggage in a little park setting, uh, and it was just spectacular. And, and we sat there and just drank wine. I just, I just sat there with my mouth shut and listened to it go on and on and on. Uh, Wes, you know that, that that is the dream for, I think, every listener. <laughs> you, you literally lived one of the most insane picnics in motorsport well and i did sit as i was sitting there listening i did realize the surrealness of the whole thing and like you know how did i get here i you know majored in american lit in college uh, how did it lead to this it was uh it was one of those moments for sure i mean ezra pound takes your places that's all we can really say about that that's the uh it was one of the greatest. It was. It was certainly one of one of the better days in this business for me. You know, it's interesting that um, his his colleagues, his friends and colleagues, whom we also know and revere, uh, who have uh, sadly also passed on, um, Dan Gurney and Phil Hill, were very much the same way. They were uh, honorable men who uh, raced fairly and uh, and were friends with everybody they were racing with. It was. It was uh, a different era. We lost Dan Gurney. Oh, what was it? Has it been two years now? And uh, a few years before that, we lost Phil Hill. And those guys were cut from the same cloth. You know, they were uh, good guys and they just happened to be fantastic race car drivers. They just happened to be the best race car drivers of their era. And, uh, and I think were- there's a couple of those guys left. I think uh, Mario Andretti is one. And I yeah. think Richard Petty is one. Yeah, and uh, th- I'm sure there's more. We shouldn't even name names because there's more that. Oh no, yeah. If, if we thought long and hard enough about it, but yeah, th- I mean, th- there's a handful of racers. You know, racing historically is is full of scoundrels and thieves, but there are a few people that stand out as good guys, and uh, you know, I think Roger Penske's probably one of them. Patty, Mario, and the three guys that Vaughn mentioned for sure. Um, yeah. I will say before moving on, uh, my experience with Petty is I sat behind him on the way back home from Goodwood, which was wild to me. But uh, hey, and one one more interesting thing that that uh, story about the 1958 Portuguese Grand Prix that appeared in Competition Press, which is yes. Auto Week, uh, was written by Carol Shelby. So they had recruited Carol Shelby to write the right the race report from the 58. That's awesome. Portuguese Grand Prix. I thought that was just so cool. And I, you know, digging back there, you find you, you wouldn't, that's not going to happen today. No. But anyway. Was, and Vaughn, you were the only one that's still on the masthead from that issue. <laughs> <laughs> now, about that, uh, about that story, Mark, do you know if Carol changed a few words and sold it to other publications or were we the only the same one? same story 14 times with a different headline. Yeah. <laughs> Inside joke. Some people listening go, oh, I got that. I, yeah, I got it. I'm sure everybody did. But uh, Mr. Anal, what else is going on out there? Uh, the next thing we wanted to talk about was this sort of an interesting little twist. Uh, we're hearing that the next Mazda 6 sedan is not only going to be rear drive, but also have an inline 6, uh, which is fascinating to me anyway. And, it's not uh, common for a Mazda. I mean, a straight six. No, exactly. And when you think well, about what are we, what are we basing that on? Mazda hasn't announced that. That was uh, a report in colleagues. 
kind of colleagues, the car and driver. Is that where we're getting? Yes. And where, where do they cite? Do they have a source? I think that they're, I'm, I'm looking at, I'm looking it up right now. Uh, it's, uh, they probably I mean, it's called... great news. That would be really I'm not... Go ahead. Sorry. I just wonder where they, whether they, uh, where they got that. They might have a they mole might... at Mazda. They might have the, oh, uh... yeah. they did that reporter stuff. Yeah. All right. Go ahead, Raynal. Sorry. No, I was just I was just looking to see where they got it. It, it looks like they're just kind of speculating. Uh, yeah. But they got a nice drawing of it. Right. Part of the speculation makes sense from the standpoint that it sounds like quite a bit of it might be Toyota slash Lexus hardware. Who has uh, a straight six that they because Mazda can't afford to make its own straight six? Well, that's what I was months. just saying that I think they would partially re- rely on Toyota, which. Uh, has ties to who? BMW. So, right. so it's a BMW straight six in a month. It might be a based on something like that. Yeah. That would be wild. That would be really wild. And I think it's, you know, we've talked about this a thousand times on these podcasts. Mazda is beloved by car enthusiasts and ignored by consumers. People just, you know, they make the best car in a lot of categories that they're in and people don't buy them. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see if this thing happens the way it, I mean, it was supposed to be out, you know, sometime later this year or early next year, but now nothing's moving forward really at the moment. So how, how long we're going to have to wait uh, late, late next year beyond. So interesting, yeah. interesting thing to keep an eye on. Yeah, it's a beautiful looking car. Uh, what was the name of that? Boy, it was like four or five years ago at Tokyo, the, the red Mazda concept car. The RX Vision. Yeah, that thing was about a block and a half long. That was a, a beautiful car. Can- yeah, if, you, if, if the listeners go to autoweek.com, we have a gallery of that. Yeah, uh, there it is. I'm looking at it. Online, it's, and that is a pretty car. I remember that car. I think I saw that car after that at Geneva. Yeah, it's beautiful. No. Uh, what else is out there, Mister Randall? What else? Well, what else are we seeing? I do have one little, one more tidbit I would like to get across to the listeners. Um, a few, we've done a few stories over the last few months on the last nine nine one chassis, nine nine one nine eleven that rolled off the line was the Speedster Porsche Speedster. And now uh, it's been decided that that car is going to be auctioned off with at uh, Sotheby's, RM Sotheby's, and they're going to give the money to United Way for COVID uh, response. And uh, it's going to be amazing. The auction is a week from tomorrow at 1 p.m. And, uh, oh, I'm sorry. It, I'm reading it wrong. It starts tomorrow and ends in a week. So yeah, it's, that, starts, that, that's, that's better. Tomorrow at 11, it starts, and people have a week to bid on it. It ends April 22nd at 1. Uh, it was the last one made, the last 991 chassis, it's, and it was a speedster. We did stories on that. You, the winner gets a watch with it. Uh, if you want the car, you also get a watch. 
And uh, it's going to be, you know, for a very good cause. It's a very cool car. What do you think the motivation would be? Because, it, you know, the, it's the previous uh, chassis and all. Uh, why would, uh, what do you think people are buying? Buy why do you think they're bidding on that? Why would they want that? Well, because it. that, first of all, that Speedster was a limited car, number yep. one, uh, less than 2000. And, you know, people always want the first or last of anything. Yeah. You know, or the hundredth or the fiftieth or whatever. And so they did they did uh nineteen one thousand nine hundred and forty-eight of those speedsters, because that's the year the company was founded. And you know, this is the last one. And I think people respond to firsts and lasts. And somebody, uh, you know, like Rick Hendrick always buys those right. first Corvettes or first Camaros or first whatevers. And he yeah. gives that he and they give that money away to charity. So yeah. This is for a good cause. I think it's going to be very expensive. It's a seven-figure car, easy. Uh, I don't know how many, you know, I don't know what the first number is going to be, but there will be six digits after it, I predict. And uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I don't know All about you guys, but I will definitely be uh, throwing my hat in the ring and throwing my money around. I'm going to I'm gonna, uh, spend Vaughn's money on that, actually. And well, you could be to- the... Just be the first bidder, and uh, you know you get up there right away, and you bid like fourteen dollars or something, and and then you're on the list. You'll probably get on some kind of list. Sotheby's send you a hat or something. I'm definitely on a few lists, but uh, if I could be on Sotheby's list, that wouldn't be a bad thing at all. But uh, I think that's that's good to hear. The COVID relief's always good to hear. Um, and whoever buys that car, that. <sighs> Regardless of how much you spend, I think that's a smart buy because that car is only going to appreciate. So if listeners are interested in going uh, and looking that over a little bit more, uh, com is the place to go, and they've got a story up. Uh, it's an online-only auction, obviously. No, no one's going to be traveling to any to look at it under any tents or anything at this time. But uh, so it's online only. You can go to rmsotherby.com and check it out. It's all there. Or uh, you can read about it at autoweek.com as well, where we have a link to the RM story. I suggest swinging through to autoweek.com. Unless you're driving, then park and go to autoweek.com. Exactly. All right. Uh, Thank you, guys. And on to the drives. And we are back with the segment you've been waiting for and the people you want to hear. Uh, we're back. About- you're going to tell us how you cried? Is that what we were? Yeah, off the air. We were talking about how Wesley was crying. Uh, well, you know, I love crying. It's a, I'm a semi-professional crier. Uh, not like the guys who, you know, say things in, in courts. I just, uh, you know, I just weep. I'm a weeper. I like to weep. Uh, you can catch it all on my Twitch channel, Wesley Weeps. Back to the back to the more important topic at hand. You're finally you've made it. You're at the end. You're here for the uh, the, the crown jewel, the drives. And as, as as he's already spoken, you're here with Mr. Joe Brown, a new voice for the podcast. Hi. Uh, and you're also here with some re- returning cast of characters, Jake and Mr. Wes Raynal. Hello, hello. Uh, the kids are sleeping. I got about 25 minutes. Let's do this thing. All righty. Well, hopefully we're going to wrap it up before that, but who knows if we can because someone, I'm not naming names, drove an Aston Martin DB11. Joe, how was it? 
I thought you weren't going to name my name. I, um, I missed. I forgot. It, sorry. <laughs> yeah. You know, the thing about driving that car, and I've been lucky enough to, to drive some, some good cars. I don't think I have ever been in a car where people in front of me aggressively slowed down to keep me from having <laughs> like that one. Um, I mean, it was, it was like pronounced yeah. <laughs> and, and I get it, you know, it's a pandemic. What am I doing? Am I going to the grocery store with a mask and a DB 11 with a trunk that's maybe big enough to hold a cantaloupe? <laughs> I'm obviously out there with some tomfoolery. So I don't know if I can blame people, but, uh, but yeah, there was like, everybody I drove behind was like, let me see if I can get this 10 miles an hour under the speed limit. <laughs> and then Joe, Joe, remind me, are you in New York city or are you outside of the city? I'm outside of the city. I'm in a, a little hamlet. I live on a farm and um, there are not a lot of Aston Martins around here. But yeah, at least you got some open roads that are maybe curvy. It is a, a very fun place to drive. Nice. Um, right now is the time when you can start to hit farm rush hour, like around 6 a.m. Because, you know, everybody's planting. But um, if you can time it right, and, and it's usually around 7, if you go right after farm rush hour, but before what would usually be like, you know, local rush hour, you can have the roads pretty much to yourself. And I have a nice little, you know, depending on the car, 20 to 30 minute loop that I do that's, you know, I've done a, a million times. And, uh, and yeah, the Aston's fun, unless the tires are cold, in which case it's not fun. Well, so you're driving the, the V8 equipped Aston, which stickers for about 202,000, uh, um, four liter twin turbo V8, eight speed automatic, 503 horsepower, 498 pound feet of torque, um, yeah. paddle shifters, all the good stuff. Uh, but yeah, what, I'm trying to remember what kind of tires are on it. Do you happen to remember, Joe? Probably not. They were about as wide as a speed limit sign. Nice. Um, I mean, I think they were your, I don't know if they were P-Zeros, but they were or equivalent. Um, the, they had just taken the winter tires off the car is what the, the gentleman who delivered it to me said, which is good, or maybe it's not good. I don't know. Um, but, the, you know, they're pretty sticky once they get up to temperature, but in the mornings here, it still can be in the 30s. And that is a... Um, that's a lot of horsepower to put through a a wide set of cold summer tires. Definitely. Um, so I drove this. I drove the V12. I don't think I've driven the V8, but I had we had both the DB and the Aston Martin Vantage in the office at Auto Week last uh, summer, I think. Yeah. And I think the I like the way the Vantage looks better. They kind of changed the looks on the DB11. What do you think? Uh, the one I had was yellow, so. Um, yeah, it it definitely caught attention. It seems like when you have a car that looks like the DB 11 does in a color like yellow, you should actually drive it slowly because the whole point of having a car that looks like that in that color is that people will look at it. And if you're driving too fast, they can't see it very well. Um, you know, the styling on that is a little ostentatious for me. Um, it's especially with the floating roof. And that that weird is it a, a B pillar or a C pillar in the back there? Yes, C. Uh, it's a, pillar, it's a C pillar, West. yeah. It's a C pillar, but there's no B pillar. The technically gotta gotta pull out the the B pillar is the door jam. Right. Technically, right. outstanding. So the B and a half pillar in the back there, basically you know, <laughs> being black, while the it looks like a very 
big bumblebee. Um, and, and yeah, it's loud and it's, I feel like it's very good for driving slowly in Miami, but driving quickly in rural New York, it's a, it's a look. Yeah. And if you, if you get it in black, then that black floating roof kind of goes away a little bit and it looks yeah. better. But like, this is coming off the, the rest of the DBs are like some of the best looking cars ever built anywhere. So going to like a kind of like a polarizing look was not great for me. Dog. I think I take risks though, you know? Like I get it. Like, what if they had created like the next visual trend? You got. I, I give Aston Martin kudos for taking a, a risk on that. Well, um, the but the floating roof's been around for too long now, and it should go away. So that's not a, that's not a risk. But the whole thing is. I mean, it's also a very big car. I, I find that you know you get up close to like a, a modern Ferrari, and it's always like astonishing how little they are. Because you uh, you expect this thing with all of these incredible outlandish elements coming off them and like cool aero this and that to be like somehow bigger and then you get up to it and it comes up to like your hip bone and it's like quite small and compact. I had the opposite experience with the DB, which is it's a very large car and it actually kind of like it handles like a bigger car too. Uh, it's not flickable. Mm -hmm. Sure, you can oversteer it and I'm sure it has great skid pad numbers. Because again, like each tire has its own zip code, but it it's not something where you're going to be like linking your turns and in, in a really like quick fashion around these little country roads, like you would in something like a Miata or whatever. Um, long, big sweeper, nice pavement, maybe a little bit of, of camber, like, okay, yeah, then you can really get on the power and have like the full Aston Martin experience. But in little country roads, which I assume is what... I don't know. I mean, with little country roads, it can be challenging. It'd be nice on the highway, though. Uh, your country roads out there, are they, like, smooth and paved nicely, or are they old country roads breaking up? They are smooth and paved nicely until they turn to dirt with mm -hmm. no warning. Um, and that can get a little Western if you don't know the roads around here. <laughs> get a little Western as in, like, bucking Bronco? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. For those of you who don't live in, like, rural areas, a lot of times you will have um, – a farm on the side of the road and they will ask the county or the town to leave their section dirt so the livestock can cross more easily. Um, I'm, I'm not a farmer, but uh, it is, there's something about having a, uh, about having a dirt or a gravel road that's more better for cattle, I think. Um, and or at least that's what I've been told. So oftentimes you'll have a dirt section that is just like one farm long and there are a couple roads in particular around here where they're on a big turn and, if, and, and that will, that will ruin your day. <laughs> yeah. um, about the, the size thing, like you said, it, it seems smaller than you get up to and it feels pretty big. Like the Porsche 911, whenever I think about it or even like walk up to them, like, Oh, it's a smaller car. It's a smaller car. But then you see it parked next to something and they're like, Holy crap, this is not a smaller car. This is a semi big car now. Like when you see a 911 parked next to an old 911? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's so much engine in the back there. That's true. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, the, the, the Aston, nothing about it seems small. A big car. Except for the back seats, which are like the old Porsche 944 seats. Those ones where you have to be a legless uh, child to fit. Like a, a really low package tray. 
Yeah, I'm I'm in the uh, I'm in the BMW X uh, 840xi right now, and it's got I mean it's a big car, and the back seats I put the child seats in, and I still couldn't move my seat back to where I needed to drive because I would have crushed the kids' legs. Like there's, and I think maybe the the car seats you know take away a couple inches of knee room regardless, but still like I I had to like hunch over when I took the kids out for a spin in it. I put uh, I put our infant car seat in the BMW M850i a while back last summer um and like i could barely get it in the car like i had it was i was really like cramming it through the space between the the b pillar and the back of the seat because there's just like and that back seat has like some room like you could fit in a, a small adult human there but it was i was also like right up against like chest on the steering wheel as i drove that thing well, yeah, and those those infant carriers too. They're they're so they're wide and long and deep. They're just not manageable. They're crappy to bring around with you. Yeah, um, my my child is also large. <laughs> okay, she's big. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was the Aston. Um, what what else can I say about it? You know, it's got like these three modes. In, in general, my opinion on like supercar level machines it's like the only mode is race mode um so it's got like sport or it's got like grand touring sport and sport plus um sport plus really is the the better engine mode the suspension has sport plus suspension and in, i i had a little bit of trouble on bumpy roads finding the right suspension setting because um, again like if you're too soft it's a little floaty and if you're too hard on on bumpy roads It'll, it'll fuck you around a little bit. See, and something with, uh, see, like for, so to me, like Aston, like a DB11, I would be fine with one really good mode in that, whether it's like super sporty or kind of in the middle. With something yeah. like a Ferrari, I'm ta- I'm good with three modes. Like give me like a super soft, a medium, and a super hard. And then, but just give me the best mode you got. For most cars, just give me the best mode you got, I think. I like having a couple road modes. I, you know, I appreciate speaking of Ferrari, the, the bumpy road suspension setting. Oh yeah. 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 That's, that's a really like intelligent thing to have. Um, and, and I used the GT mode as that bumpy road suspension setting and just like, Oh no, you can't, you can't push it up towards, you know, seven or eight tenths around this turn because you're in floating mode. It's a grand tour though, you know, like get in the car, go for a drive. It's not, uh, it is not the kind of car that I think you're like encourages you to really throw it into the turns the way that like, like a Miata would, but it, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a good drive. One final question about the Aston, Joe, uh, just over 200 grand. If now imagine if you have Bezos money, yeah. Would you pull the trigger on it? Would, would you add this to your, uh, your fleet? No. What would you pick instead? I mean, literally anything else. Oh, I mean, it, it is not the kind of car that if somebody gave it to me, I'd be like, better, better write the Craigslist ad now. Yeah. It's a, a beautiful, like, or at least a, a visually striking machine. Um, I like the AMG GT, which shares that V8 mm-hmm. finish of, of the Benz. And, and I think the suspension and the chassis are a little bit more my style. And the uh, AMG GT uh, is undeniably beautiful. That's a gorgeous car. And it's a hundred grand less. For the base one, yeah. Yeah. 
Who needs seats? Not, I mean, not me. All my cars need one seat. I'm very lonely. <laughs> I mean, I also might might get the Vantage. I'll be honest. Like the Vantage, Vantage is awesome. It's got a smaller wheelbase, plenty of power. I'm I'm of the opinion generally that like modern cars have too much power. I would oh, take yeah. a lightweight. 200 horsepower car almost any day. Um, but yeah, the Vantage, it's, it's smaller wheelbase, a little bit less power, but still plenty. And then that look is just, to me, it looks like it's trying to like eat the pavement. I yeah, the, the Vantage is one of my more. But uh, moving to a car that doesn't eat pavement, or I mean, I don't know what it does in its spare time. The Porsche Macan Turbo. Mr. Raynal. Yes, I'm here. Ha- uh, nice to meet you. Glad you could join us. Uh, how the heck was that Macan, bud? Uh, I'm probably going to get a little too gushy for some. Uh, I thought it was fantastic, especially when considering a couple of things. It's, believe it or not, the Macan is now the oldest car Porsche in the Porsche lineup, even though I think it drives as well as almost any other Porsche for the money. Uh, it's 911 with a back seat. When you, when you have a 911, and you're too big to sit in the back, you get a Macan set. And you save a lot of money. So I, I thought it was spectacular. It, it drives well. It's extremely well built. Uh, it's a lot of power, and I just loved it. Uh, real fast, uh, talking about the 911, I keep trying to put my luggage in the back of the 911, and that cargo area, awful. It seems like they put an engine in there for some reason. It I don't, seems know, like I don't they, understand it. They got they got that one backwards, but you know, you guys were talking about the Aston. I if you if I was forced with a gun to buy something of that ilk, I think I'd get a turbo. But a turbo is just a little sweetheart. It feels light on its feet, which I'm sure the Aston oftentimes doesn't. Not that anyone's comparison shopping them, but yeah, no one's cross shopping a Macan and a no. I got you. <laughs> I got you. I got you. But How I much just is thought, the Macan, Wes? Huh? How much is the Macan? Uh, this one that I starts the turbo that I was in starts at eighty three, and uh, mine was ninety four with with well bells and whistles. For that, and that's the top line Macan. I mean, it's not cheap. I'm not going to sit here yeah. and tell you it's a bargain. But uh, you know, it, honestly, uh, Mr. Randall, when you say that, when you say it's '94 with all the bells and whistles, I'm stunned. I mean, a Porsche that doesn't get 100% markup with options is that's a kind of an outlier. They like to pile on the options that company. You know, Porsche's always been one of the companies that equipment away from the car and charges you more for it. But <laughs> I, I don't know, man. Hit me the right way. I, maybe maybe I was in a good mood the week it was here, so the two weeks that it was here, I just looked for excuses to go take it for a spin. And uh, I'm not going to mention the car that's in the driveway now, but I am not looking for excuses to go take it for a spin. Well, that's the thing. Porsche does. I was just right about the the Cayenne a few uh, hours ago, and I was thinking that they just they make SUVs that are kind of fun to drive. I mean. If you could, you could probably count on one hand the SUVs or crossovers that are fun, actually fun to drive, and the Macan and the Cayenne are probably two of them. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think that, you know, everyone I, – I think the general pop, populace is, has gotten over the fact that Porsche is doing – Yeah, 
it's accepted now. But you have it on their laurels, I don't think, in any way, shape, or form. And these things just keep getting better and better. That that Macan, it defies physics with the shit you can do with that turbo. It just does. I mean, I drove it. It's got ground clearance, right? Pardon me? And it's got ground clearance? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I'm not going to go to the Rubicon with it. I mean, it's if you need a car with a back seat and want to have a hell of a lot of fun. Right, but you don't have to worry about like going diagonal into the parking lot at the grocery store, though, right? Nope, 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 nope. No, it's no, that no, you do not. It's uh, Mr. Raynal, you're, you're touching on the back seat situation, but uh, I have to ask Porsche has two sedans with usable back seats the uh, Taycan and the Panamera. Would you pick the Macan over either of those? I know you love the Taycan, and they're not really you know apples <sighs> to apples, but the Taycan was, was one of the most mind blowing cars I've driven in a decade easily. I love everything about it. If I had a fleet of cars, that would be in it for sure. Uh, but so would probably the Macan for different reasons. Uh, it's a little bit more practical. It's got a little bit more uh, hauling ability for you know a weekend camping or a weekend going up north or a weekend whatever. Uh, and it's certainly got more range, obviously. But I, there's just I can't find much fault with it except it's not cheap. Does it tow? I don't know if it tows. I, I'm looking. I'm skipping through the uh, specs right now. I don't see anything about towing, but I'm sure you could tow something small and light with it. I mean, it's got 435 horsepower. I think you'd be able to tow something with yeah, a jet ski or a motorcycle yeah, or something. Exactly, a small motorcycle. I have an RDX, and it doesn't tow. And I was very and mostly it's because of the rear brakes. And the uh, the fact that it's a front biased all wheel drive system, but it's got oh, you know, interesting almost three hundred horsepower, which you would imagine plenty of trucks have towed boats with three hundred or, or fewer horsepower. So this yeah, car, the, the MDX tows because we had a long term MDX. So I think we towed with it a time or two. That yeah, thing's beast. Yeah, the, also, the, it's got the super all wheel drive, which has the rear bias of ability. Uh, the Macan uh, Turbo can tow 4,430. 4, you took the you words go. out of my mouth, Mr. Reynolds. So that's a small that's motorcycle trailer, a little tiny yeah. little Airstream. Yeah, I mean, that's plenty of towing for, yeah. for people who aren't getting like a big bass boat. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, you can't tow your cabin cruiser with it, but for that, you get the Suburban. I, I don't know, man. I just This thing is just such a nice little package. Well, and I, I would like to, now that I say that, though, you know, it is a huge leap in price over the, it's almost 10 grand more than a GTS. I think it's like 8,500 more than a GTS. I would like to drive one back to back and see if I couldn't get away with just having the GTS. I mean, it's, it's going to cost me, you know, it's 375 horsepower versus the turbos, 434. But am I going to really notice that on a day-to-day -day basis? I don't know. I'd like to try yes. them both at the same time. We're all trapped at home. You're not going to notice anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I think that, you know, I'd like to try them both at the same time before I make my choice. But to Jake's point about the Cayenne, that thing feels like big and lumbering after I get out of a Macan. And it's not. I get it. It's a fine driving crossover as any of them. But 
you get, I just think that McCann just, it's a, it's like a sweet spot. It's not too big. It's not too small. It's nice and light on its feet. It's just, it's got a tactility to the steering that I don't think that the Cayenne has. Although I'm sure, stupid me, it's probably the same exact steering box. I don't know. Well, but, I would bet that if you drove the the Cayenne, I mean, Cayenne to Macan, obviously the Macan's going to feel lighter. But if you drove Cayenne to any of its competing, you would think the Cayenne is light on its feet, I think. I bet. I'm sure that's true. How thick is the steering wheel? I've been, well, I mean, I didn't tape measure it, but it, it feels fine. Is it like a chunky steering wheel? Yeah. 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 Why? What, one of you can probably help me understand this. Like, what is the reasoning behind the thickness of a steering wheel in a sports car? Because, like, the Aston Martin steering wheel is very thick. And, like, the, the Porsches that I've driven, the steering wheels are, like, you know, pretty meaty. And then, you know, to get it, take it back again to, like, the Miata, the Miata steering wheel is, is like, a, like a bent noodle. I mean, it's, it's not like it's going to crack or bend on you, but it's like very, very skinny. And then a lot of the older sports car steering wheels are very skinny. Is there any rhyme or reason behind that? That's a good question. I've never really thought about it, but, you know, you can also get the, the MDX is, has a thick steering wheel. Uh, all, all accurates do, I think, yeah, for some weird reason. I don't know. I, I, would imagine, I, would, I would imagine like some focus group has been performed where it shows like, Thicker steering wheels are more comfortable to the hand, to like 80% of the hands or something. So Might that's, be a probably why. Thing? I don't know. That's a question I ask Robin Warner. Ooh, resident yeah. engineer, Robin Warner. Yeah. But anyway, hit the sweet spot for me. Uh, Mr. Randall, again, if you have Bezos money, are you pulling the trigger on one of these bad boys? Oh, yeah, I would have that. I would have a Taycan. I might have one of those Astons. Joe, what color was the roof on your Yellow. The roof itself was yellow? Oh, I think it was. Because I've seen them in white and I've seen them in black. And that's a very. Oh, no, the roof was black. Okay. Because that, I think, looks a hell of a lot better than the ones with the white. Yeah, it's, um, it's black. That's for sure. Anyway, Wesley, yeah, I would totally have a Macan turbo in my fleet if i had a fleet i'd have a take on too and you can like buy I all of those from uh reynolds motorverken uh, yes, the local can. porsche porsche dealer in gross point <laughs> yeah exactly no it's it's a really nice it's just a nice combo i'd like to see that take on in the press fleet damn it i uh i got to drive it on my porsche ice thing but i only got to drive it on straight up ice so my max speed my max car speed was probably 25 miles an hour my max wheel speed i saw like 175 indicated but um never actually got to put the power down well as soon as we get off the podcast i will text the take on guy down in atlanta who i know is working out of his house uh and tell him to ask him what's happening with the press fleet if if, if there's any of those in the press fleet because you're right i haven't I, the only i've driven one twice they claim that i'm the only journalist in the world to have driven it twice because uh, i did one in a drive in europe and a drive in america and i was the only guy invited to both supposedly i don't know if that's true but yeah they should be in the fleet by now calvin hit us up come on calvin I'm going to text Calvin as soon as we hang up. Ask him about his uh, his toy Hobbs. 
And with that, I think it's as good a time as any to wrap this bad boy up. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, don't forget to hit the old iTunes five star, uh, like, subscribe, tell a friend, yada, yada, yada. And also, stay safe out there. Thanks for listening.